Hello, honeys, and welcome to our eighth episode. It's exciting to already be at such a nice, big, round number. Today we will be talking about the first of several art historical myths that we'll be covering throughout this month here of December. The first one is the myth of the genius, and how, as of about the 1970s, it became more popularly known in the art historical field that that was really the myth of the male genius. It took a very special lady to point this out, Miss Linda Nochlin, and ever since, feminist art history has been growing as a legitimate field of research. So without further ado, let's dive in and get into what exactly this myth is and how it came to be associated with Uh, males so specifically. Our sources for today include Cody Delastrati's The Myth of the Artistic Genius in the Paris Review as of January 2020, David W. Gallinson's Five Myths About Art, Age, and Genius put in the Washington Post as of November 2007, Rosanna McLaughlin and Richard Cork's Debate, Is There Such a Thing as Artistic Genius?, from the Royal Academy of Art in March of 2020. Of course, Linda Nochlin's Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists uh, from Art News, originally published in 1971, and her 30 years later conference presentation at Princeton University in 2001. Monica Perinder's The Myth of Genius in iMagazine, Winter 2000. And finally, Fernando Teixeira and Isabella Cardoza's The Lone Genius Myth, Why Even Great Minds Collaborate, published by the BBC in March of 2021. First things first, I'd like you to, even if it's just in your head, name five geniuses. Now name five great artists. Odds are you just listed close to, if not exactly, 10 dudes. Now this is kind of not your fault. It speaks to a larger problem of over-visibility and overpopulation of male genius figures throughout not only art history, but cultural history in general. So the question was raised eventually, finally, why are men associated with genius, greatness, some great innate, extraordinary ability. With the 70s being such a time of cultural change as they were, I think it was kind of inevitable that someone would have raised this question of, you know, why have there been no great women artists at some point in those years, but as Nachlin explains in her very anecdotal opening to that essay, there was such a a culture of sexism in art history even that that was a question someone legitimately posed to her and expected her to answer on spot. And of course, Nachlin's mind went in a dozen different directions, so she decided to sit down, research, write, and penned this really quite extraordinary essay that's, that's pretty much infamous in art history at this point. And the short answer of what she said is that women weren't allowed to be great. 
they weren't allowed to do anything that would have allowed them to be great, that is. For a very long period of history, women weren't allowed to go to school, take lessons in fine arts, have tutors in fine arts, get published, have work presented, be in the performing arts without being seen as a sex worker, paint nudes in the academies, and so on. Not only does she state her point about women being intentionally excluded from the arts for such a long time that it makes perfect sense that they could not have been great, and exposes multiple problems with the myth of greatness specifically in the arts. For example, the myth suggests very inaccurately that all of these individual guys, geniuses, became great simply all by themselves, which is just not true. For a famous example, we can look to Michelangelo, who had a team of assistants while he was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Furthermore, this myth perpetuates the view that creativity is an inborn natural talent, a gift of the few rather than the capacity of all humans, which is also not true. Of course, Nachlin was not the only one to see this once she pointed it out, and several art historians have iterated her research to get at the core of the problem, which is that greatness traits are inherently masculine traits. So Delastrati says, quote, because the understanding of artistic genius has been so closely linked to privileges and traits associated with masculinity, women have forever been locked out of the conversation, end quote. So in her opinion, traits include confidence in one's talents and projects, a sort of emotional brutality, a certainty of their own vision, and a kind of blustering, quick-to-anger, solitary personality and lifestyle, often with lots of travel. Perinder agrees, providing a genius checklist of characteristics associated with them. The first is a creator status, meaning uh, an artist, writer, or scientist who rises above the ordinary mortal, acquiring a semi-divine status in their godlike ability to make new things. There's also the individualist, a pioneering solitary nonconformist, the madman trait, aka, you know, the, the recognition that links between genius and perceived madness are everywhere throughout the art historical record. There's a perception of intuitiveness surrounding greatness as well, in that the work is seen as quote-unquote natural and unlearned rather than taking multiple years of schooling and, and lots of refining of one's trade. They also see a lot of pioneership in that they're considered ahead of his or her, but rarely her, time, and as possibly a misunderstood or tortured soul. Funny enough, several of these are myths in and of themselves to be the focus of several other episodes in this series. And another side note that I found neat when doing the research for this episode, Teixeira and Cardoza point to a 1995 study by Alfonso Monturi and Ronald E. Purser that shows that the lone genius myth spans industries, 
and is especially prominent in tech, which if you think about the kind of Jobs, Musk-like figures, yeah, perfect examples. Now, in an effort to be fair, I'm going to do something of a special insert here in order to flesh out how ideas of the genius worked and work in the real world. I'm going to cite and summarize the debate that I mentioned by the Royal Academy. So the debate is between art critic and curator Richard Cork, who is for the idea of the genius, versus editor and writer Rosanna McLaughlin, who is against the idea of the genius. And the basis of the argument I found as I read it deeply is the idea of kind of personal experiences of encountering the heights of artistic endeavors versus the belief that genius is a myth that preserves white male privilege and gets in the way of true artistic discernment. And those are some of McLaughlin's own words. Cork starts out with something of a caveat. He agrees that no art is beyond criticism, but he goes on to say that outstanding artists, in his opinion, are worthy of a term to define their exceptional talent. So in his idea, the purpose of the genius myth is more to describe a very deep personal effect of works which, quote, completely transcend expectations, end quote. In other words, works which outlast or surpass both their creators and the sociocultural forces shaping their creators in some way. And he points to several personal examples of how this transcendent experience might go. The first example he gives is meeting Picasso and Cannes and having an experience where they drew each other's portraits. He says, quote, When I looked at Picasso's eloquent command of line, the words artistic genius spring to mind, summing up his ability to bestow a revelatory barrier-breaking experience, end quote. In another section, he says, quote, As an embattled teenager myself, I identified with the sadness in Rembrandt's version of Titus with his dark, defensive eyes. His defiant ability to survive on the surface of this canvas moved me deeply, end quote. McLaughlin, though, has some pretty strong rebuttals. For example, she says that, quote, it's a no-brainer that those granted the right to education, the vote, and legal control over their finances and bodies have historically excelled in their fields. Genius is a moniker intimately entwined with white male privilege. In other words, it is wrong to use positive lingo like genius to cover up or excuse historical structural inequality. This is because it conveniently leaves out realities of financial privilege, allowing for dedication of time and energies to artistic practice, workshops, friends, family members, all forms of unpaid assisting labor, inspirations coming from native cultures across the world who went uncredited in the case of Picasso or Pollock and many others, and also that the myth of the genius makes art exhibitions, collecting, museums, and so on stagnant. Because everyone is focused on getting something touched by a past genius's hand, even if it is a three-line prep sketch, 
there is limited room to continue to build the art historical record and not much funding for new promise exists. She also talks about the way in which genius allows us to treat the worst biographical details of one's life as part of their folklore, their character arc, or their legend. It allows us to excuse, deny, or overlook, often at the expense of an already disempowered victim, some very real and poor behavior. Now, I don't mean to say that moral pureness is needed to make a cultural contribution, but that that contribution does not mean that all is forgiven forever. And McLaughlin just has some really great quotes. For example, she says, quote, Full of holes and intellectually torpid, genius is culture's flat tire, end quote, because it's old, non-functional, and gets in the way. So ultimately, this split rests on Cork's desire to see the genius as a personally significant, emotionally loaded term, and McLaughlin's certainty that it must be seen as a historically loaded, problematically exclusive one. Historically, McLaughlin is more correct. The standards of genius that exist today are partially due to the popular ideas of what an artist is or what it meant to be an artist that emerged in the Enlightenment. Perinder points to art historians Rosika Parker and Griselda Pollock, who examine, quote, how the myth of the genius as a creative individual is tied to the emergence of a new meaning for the word artist, end quote. So until the 18th century, the term was applied to an artisan, craftsman, or someone who displayed taste. But Parker and Pollock maintained that the modern perception, which developed from the Enlightenment onwards, of the artist as an uh, imaginative, creative, unconventional, like bohemian pioneer, is a constructed idea that came into being as certain craftsmen strove to become more respected members of the cultural elite. And in fact, I think all of that is direct quote from Perinder. So just try and give credit where credit is due. In other words, the genius myth is a lingering, I'm different, I'm special attitude surrounding those who art for money that is only acceptable when it is performed by men. This essay has a huge and tangible impact on both feminism and research in art history. It is the first popularly known exploration of women's history within art history, which is strongly ironic given the topic is women's systemic exclusion from such records and spaces. And it began a flood of feminist art historical publications lasting through to the present day, it marked the start of the field as a serious area of research. As feminist art history grew in scope and in legitimacy, it began to point out double standards within the entirety of the art scene. For example, many famous women painters, such as Lavinia Fontana, my girl Artemisia Genaleski, the Spanish court painters Sofonisba Anguissola, and others, have had works misattributed to men. 
but this hardly ever happens in reverse. That's because it's harder to prove that a woman artist created something than a male artist. There's a higher threshold of evidence needed. And unfortunately, the greatness assigned to a work can change with the recognition that it was actually created by a woman artist. Furthermore, there are still kind of acceptable standards of production when it comes to men and women artists that are not the same. As Delastrati points out, quote, For female portraitists, gendered social expectations often come explicitly to bear on what the art can and cannot be. The photographer Sally Mann, for instance, was heavily criticized for supposedly creating child pornography after publishing Immediate Family in 1992, a series for which she took pictures of her young children, Jesse, Virginia, and Emmett, in the nude or in otherwise vulnerable positions on their family farm in Lexington, Virginia. End quote. Now, of course, there, there's some reason to be concerned when anyone publishes nude images of children, but having seen them myself, it's very clear that they are just kids running around naked as kids do. It's clear that there's a, a motherly sort of intimacy rather than any sort of uh, nefariousness to the gaze coming through that camera lens. And this outrage is particularly mind-boggling when you compare it to the silence surrounding Gauguin's history as a child rapist, when his works are largely still celebrated, or the abusive misogynist Hemingway's past, when his works are also still largely celebrated. This sort of allows us to catch back up from Nochlin's 70s feminist era because as the years went on, further change develops. There becomes more and more intersectionality within feminist art history um, because once the floodgates are opened and this unequal ground is fully accepted as a, a truth, other identity studies appear. Nochlin's essay was largely about the experience of white women. So others began contributing their own intersectional experiences, realities, details of exclusion, and so on to round out this, this exclusionary picture more fully. And lots of other studies appear surrounding the representation and histories of queer, black, Pan-Asian, and other minority artists and art histories. The field has continued to grow and dive deeper into all manner of identity-related issues, exclusion-related issues, ever since. Evidence of this can be found even in my own thesis topic and essay, because I specifically looked at the embodied experiences of contemporary women artists in their paintings and or photography. Nachlin herself revised her positions to become more inclusive in her 30 years later paper and presentation of 2001, which iterated upon and corrected her original 1971 essay in some ways. As Perinder summarizes, 
Quote, between them, feminists and postmodern theorists have pretty much debunked the myth of the genius, end quote. But she points out that the desire to stand out, to have a name in the art historical records, does live on, saying, quote, the same striving for genius status, the wish to be seen as inspired visionaries, individuals, self-taught ingenues, pioneers, and or simply mad, end quote, is still very much a thing, especially, she says, of graphic design. Of course, Nachlin and others, once they have firmly established this inequity in the art historical record, are kind of left in a what-now situation. So they begin to consider many solutions, and the most prominent and obvious-seeming one, reclamation, actually turned out to be more complex than they expected. When I say reclamation, I really mean mining the records of culture and history to find women artists who could be considered great. And there are pros and cons to this approach, as they quickly found out. The pros include that it brings women artists who deserve attention for their achievements to the forefront. It raises awareness of all types of artists and it reforms historical records for better representation and greater accuracy. But there are some important cons, too. There are issues of labeling them all as women artists, because it can become another way to celebrate the artist in a gendered way. It encourages a mental sort of separation between women and artists because of this gendered specificity in the language. And the reclamatory approach also, more often than not, results in posthumous or end-of-career shows instead of support from their early career onwards. Delastrati summarizes this issue by saying, quote, Women or not, their omission from art history is glaring. And yet it is not enough to simply plug them into the canon and carry on. The history of art is generally presented as a straight line. Giotto leads to Matisse, leads to Rothko. In order to maintain the line, underlying assumptions of what is worthy of the canon must also therefore be maintained. To engage in any kind of historical revisionism is to briefly interrupt the flow but the line eventually reverts to its original formulation because the popular understanding of what constitutes greatness has not changed, end quote. In other words, Delastrati's complaint with the reclamation approach is that it still promotes these masculine traits of quote-unquote greatness rather than changing what exactly it means to be great to a more case-by-case basis. And in that way, it still privileges, more often than not, the male artists who had greater social, economic, so on, freedoms than women artists for the grand majority of history. Art history is trying to do better in the present for the future. 
There's a greater effort to recognize and celebrate contemporary artists from all walks of life, to deconnotate artists from traditional white European image personas, and to sensibly reform curriculums to present men as well as women artists and their works as exemplaries of movements alongside such male artists. There also is a greater push to provide classes only covering women and or other shared identities of artists, um, such as ethnicity, race, so on. Of course, there are pros and cons to this as well. Pros include that it allows deep dives with lengthy opportunities to examine the effects of identity on specific artists' experiences, spotlights underrepresented artists, and allows for specialization interests to develop. And when I say specialization, I'm talking about the specific area that one studies in intense focus, often at the graduate and PhD level, for me, contemporary. The cons of that sort of um, exclusive coverage class is that it inherently separates and exoticizes the artists covered therein by this like otherness of that particular label, the same way that woman artist is separate from artist by that gendered uh, caveat. It does not allow these artists to be part of the quote-unquote normal record alongside Degas and Rubens and whoever. And so in that way is still a separation and still doesn't quite solve the issue. All right, honeys, that has been our episode. That is the summary of the male genius myth where it kind of started, how it affected pop culture for a while there, and especially the art historical record, and the feminist essays that finally brought it down, at least in scholarly circles. I hope you've learned to think quite a bit about the language we use when it comes to great minds of the past and present and how we use it to glorify, absolve, condemn, or whatever the case may be to them. I would love if you would take advantage of the fact that I have the Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists uh, essay linked in our source document for you to read and, and take the time to do it. Nachlin has a really great writing style that is sharp in the sense that she takes her subjects very seriously, but also is very witty in a, in a way that keeps things just light enough. So if you have the time, highly recommend it. If you can get your hands on the 30 years later, like a, a written copy of that conference presentation, the 2001 one, also highly recommend you do that. In any case, reconsider who you're calling a genius and why, because you may accidentally be perpetuating some pretty misogynistic sociocultural myths. Be sure to stay warm and take care of yourselves, honeys. I 
thankfully recorded most of this episode on Monday and Tuesday, and thus my voice sounds normal for most of it. But as you can tell, by the time I was editing here, uh, I had gotten some sort of cold or whatever. So take care of yourselves, chug your emergency, and be well. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.